My name's Amy Delahaye. I'm a writer and curator and dress historian. I work at London College of Fashion. I got the job as curator of 20th Century Dress at the V&A in 1991. The, the Victorian Albert Museum, historically and to a ex- large extent today, always collected the designed objects, including fashion, that were leaders in terms of inspiring other designers, the way people dressed, perhaps the most luxurious materials, the finest craftsmanship. It was the most elite, and unashamedly so. Ted Polemus had approached the museum with a view to doing a subcultural style exhibition, and they asked if I was interested. I worked on the exhibition with Ted Polemus, who worked as an external consultant and wrote the book, and then I worked very closely with Cathy Dingwall, who was a curator who worked with me in the textiles and dress department, and we acquired the clothes between us. A fashion exhibition is a way of mediating fashion, it's a way of interpreting it, and people do it in all different ways. I say I'm an object-based curator because it's the materiality of dress that inspires me to want to tell stories, but there are other very valid routes to creating or curating an exhibition without using objects. It interested me on many levels, not least because I'd always been interested in sort of working-class dress, everyday dress, alternative dress for women... And I felt very strongly that it would be interesting to try and broaden the museum's demographic, which at the time was predominantly sort of white, middle-aged, middle-class women. And I felt that if the collection policy was designed that led, actually, in the early 1990s, subcultural style was leading, because at that time we could see examples of sort of cyberpunk, mod, skinhead, um, Caribbean style, all sorts of subcultural styles on the catwalk. So I had two objectives. One was to acquire subcultural clothes over a period of 50 years, and the second was to acquire high fashion, which had been inspired by subcultures. We we had identified about 50 subcultures in the post-war period and then revival styles of them. So, for instance, with the Teddy Boys, we identified when they emerged in the 1950s, revival styles in the 1970s. And whereas museum fashion on the whole tended to have women's dress in it, subcultural style, the histories, had tended to focus upon men. So I felt very strongly that I wanted to get an, a representation of men and women, um, the original manifestation of the style and the revival styles. And what was completely important was that it was a head-to-toe outfit worn by one person who self-defined in the context of that subculture. So there was no such thing as representative or typical or it just had to be someone saying, I'm a skinhead and this is what I wore. When we started working on this exhibition, it was pre-internet, pre-mobile phone, It involved a lot of phone calls. It involved walking on the streets a lot, going and talking to people, getting into networks of people. It involved going to see loads of people who you arranged to meet and then they weren't in when you got there and doing that multiple times. It involved them throwing the clothes on the street to show me them sometimes, um, whereas I was more used to seeing them in a sort of, you know, an exclusive house, fashion house or personal residence. It was daunting being committed to an exhibition where you didn't have any objects and you didn't even know that you'd get them. Also, the fact that subcultures are based on sort of rejecting convention, there was a risk that by putting them in an elite white cultural institution that it could almost signal the death of subcultures. And people were naturally suspicious, so we had to really convince people that what we were doing we were going to do with integrity and that we would represent them in a way that they felt comfortable. So for each subculture, we appointed what we called a specialist advisor, which was a person who was a sort of way into that community. All this took ages to to get to this point... And then they formed the liaison um, and acquired the clothes, showed them to me before we acquired them. And then we tried to obtain testimony from people. It wasn't recorded, but about 
what they wore and why, ideally photographs of them. We dressed the mannequins and then before the exhibition opened, we invited absolutely every single person to come in and just make sure it looked exactly as they wanted because the nuances were so important and they weren't widely known. Like, for instance, I can remember John G. Byrne, the skinhead, saying how important it mattered that the turn-up of his jeans was a precise distance above the turn-up of his DMs. So, as much as possible, we tried to allow people to be presented as as they felt they wanted to be. It was one of those exhibitions that actually wasn't about impactful. It wasn't like, you know, the blockbuster, the star objects. It, it was incredibly human. We went out of our way to make sure we didn't use fashion mannequins, for instance. You know, and bearing in mind this is 25 years ago, and I felt really strongly that we didn't want to promote ideals of beauty or race or gender or sexuality. And also, it was an exhibition people by real people, so they couldn't all be the same height. So... I got these mannequins called flatbacks, which had just a torso and you could adjust the height so you could get them people of the right height so the clothes looked right. One of the stories that I think is interesting is that as curator of 20th century dress, I could get almost any elite fashion I wanted for the museum by just saying I work at the V&A and I'm doing an exhibition. And that didn't always work in this context. And so even though there were people who worked at the museum who had clearly been teddy boys in the 50s and had their teddy boy clothes... They wouldn't lend them. They said, you know, I'm going to get I'm going to get buried in the suit and they wouldn't have them. But then when I went to Brighton Museum a few years later and helped stage a new sort of dress and style exhibition, it was really interesting that the I couldn't get the designer items, but the sort of the communality and community that a local museum engenders meant that we did actually get the rockers' clothes and the teddy boys' clothes and they gave them to the museum in a way that I couldn't get them for the V&A. When we were working on the exhibitions, we used a lot of literary sources and there'd also been various exhibitions of photographs of subcultural people. And we thought doing our exhibition was really, really original and no-one had or was doing anything similar. And then suddenly we got whiff that Mr Roger Burton at the Contemporary Wardrobe was doing an exhibition of punk T-shirts and they were opening just before our exhibition. So we got in touch with him and we've, we've stayed friends ever since. My name is Roger Burton. I'm a collector of predominantly street fashion and uh, fashion garments. I'm a costume designer, stylist, and I curate exhibitions. I was I was asked by uh, the V&A to, to to help with the exhibition and supply some clothes, but uh, it it rapidly became apparent that they wanted to gather stuff to to keep for for and and of course you know I'm, I'm i'm a you know commercial hire company i didn't really want anything to let anything go however towards the end of the uh of the exhibitions uh putting it together as it were i was i was then approached i can't remember whether it was amy or somebody somebody approached me anyway from the vna and said they'd just acquired the windows at, at uh, harvey nichols and would I be prepared to put stuff in there to promote the exhibition? So that's what I did. And I think we had a teddy boy suit, a zoot suit, and maybe a mod suit in in those windows. It was, uh, you know, head-to-toe outfits in, in those windows, and it was advertising the V&A exhibition. I began my career in fashion... I suppose as a mod, back in the 1960s, I was completely obsessed with mod style. And 
I used to have a shop and I de- dealt in Art Deco and Art Nouveau and all those sort of stuff. But I would, always had clothing uh, that I would that I would buy and sell. There was there was a great interest in vintage clothing, sort of mid sixties to mid to late sixties, and I became more and more of a collector um, for my own purposes. You know, with the advent of, of, of well, the success of places like Bieber, who were copying sort of the nineteen thirties and forties styles, there was a, there was a, a, a quite an interest in um, vintage clothes shops opening up and wanting to buy that kind of clothing, and so I I started to deal in it really, and by sort of nineteen seventy four. I, you know, amassed a huge sort of collection of clothes, and I was, I was dealing in stuff all all over the world, um, buying and selling, uh, along with a partner, and um, it it was all very successful. And then punk came along, and and punk really kind of destroyed my trade somewhat because nobody really wanted to wear uh, in old sort of nineteen thirties and forties clothes anymore. I tried to embrace punk, although I was a little bit too old to be a punk. But I, um, my partner and I started dyeing kind of army clothes and attaching straps and zips and pins and what have you. But my heart really wasn't in it. So I, I literally went back on the road uh, buying and selling. And one day in 1978, I think it was, a um, gentleman walked by. A stall in Portobello Road, and we happened to have a, quite a few original mod suits and mod dresses on display. And he asked if um, if we had any more, and I asked why, and he said that they uh, he he was an, he was a uh, art director on a, on a movie that were, that was just about to um, just about to happen, which was financed by the Who, and it was going to be called Quadrophenia, and it was all about the whole kind of sixties mod scene. And could my partner and I supply uh, them with uh, with clothing? And so we said yes. And uh, this was on a Saturday. And by Monday morning, it, we'd signed the deal to kind of supply the film, which was a real kind of eye opener. And, and it was it was great for us because it, they the production wanted to buy everything, which meant that a we got rid of our stock and we were able to make a bit of money and and use our expertise. Be- because we became kind of consultants on the movie because the wardrobe people didn't really have a lot of first-hand experience. That all all went well, and at the end of the movie, the producers got us into their office and said, right, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I guess we're going to go back on the road and buying and selling. And he said, well, if you take my advice, you'll buy all the stock back that didn't get damaged because they thought it was going to be you know trashed in fights or end up in the sea or whatever and um buy it all back at a, at a, a decent price and um and start a, a hire company a rental company for film and tv because quadrophenia is going to be a huge hit and there's going to be lots of films made about youth culture and so on so, so well I kind of, you know, looked into it uh, and discovered that the, the, the main um, uh, costumiers, uh, which at that time was Berman's and Nathan's, their cut-off point was 1945, and and uh, I was really only interested in post-1945. So, OK, well, why not? Let's let's start this, this company. Let's start this hire company. So um, we 
put advertisements in in trade papers and sent um, flyers out to production companies and so on and so forth. Nothing. N- uh, not a dicky bird. So I literally kind of went back to buying and selling. And then after a, a, a year or so, I mean, we used to do the odd thing for, for, you know, styling for photographs, for magazines and so on, but nothing nothing of any relevance, really. And then this friend of ours who was, who was a fashion writer um, suggested that uh, she write a piece about us because she was kind of enthralled by the whole, you know, collection and so on. She managed to get it into the Sunday Times and we had five pages in the Sunday Times magazine. And slowly the phone started to ring. And that was really the beginning of it. But then got in other, you know, film productions... I was introduced to um, uh, this young film director called Julian Temple, who had just made... This was 1981, and he just made a film about the um, uh, Sex Pistols called Great Rock and Roll Swindle. And he was very intrigued by my collection of clothes that he'd heard about and loved the design of the shops that I'd done for Westwood and McLaren and asked if I would be interested in working in in film and, in, 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 in particular, music video. Uh, well, of course, I didn't know what music videos were because there was no MTV then. I said yes. And uh, that was my beginning of my career in music videos and, and, and film, really. And, uh, and, you know, I've been working in it ever since. My name's Tori Turk and I'm a curator and I specialise in style and popular culture. I find it really hard to define street style um, especially when we're, we're often we're talking about subcultures and I think that also fashion uh, the fashion industry has taken the word street style and it's now become to me mean something else it's, it's kind of it's more of an attitude as well having street style um, you know it's kind of that shot of you walking down the road looking very sort of natural and anti-fashion but you're not you know you're completely part of the system I was about 24 years old and I was a little bit lost and I didn't know what I was, what I wanted to do. Um, I actually originally wanted to be a fashion journalist and I, I did all my internships at fashion magazines and was, um, I, I didn't actually enjoy them as much as I thought as I would. And it was actually my mum that suggested that I apply for the MA Fashion Curation course because I enjoyed going to exhibitions. I also assisted an art curator and it kind of... It worked with what I like my skills. I was slightly creative. I was a little bit academic, and so it kind of I I I felt like um, I, I was a kind of pragmatic person. So I, I it kind of thought, suited my skill set. So I I applied for it, and it was the best thing that I ever did. I wouldn't say I am a traditional fashion curator. I take on a range of projects um sometimes they are sponsored by brands or they are passion projects that i've bought to institutions so when i am putting together an exhibition there are the two things that are really important to me one is um accessibility i really want my exhibitions to be accessible i don't i don't want them to be over academic and what's really important is i understand my visitor and who i'm speaking to so if for example if i'm doing an exhibition on mods or for example I didn't I curated an exhibition on the jam at Somerset House and I knew my the, my main visitor was going to be jam fans so that I had to not only satisfy the 
the Somerset House visitor, but also the jam fans. So, and that's quite a tricky task because they are, they are different types of visitors. But so it's kind of understanding that visitor and making sure that the exhibition talks to them and actually gives them what they want. Because I think anyone, when especially when they're a fan of a subject, they want to go to an exhibition and see what they want to see. I've always found it not hard to to curate um, subcultures or the subcultural content, but you do need to be really considerate of those subcultures because they are essentially owned, you know, that history is owned by the people that created it. I think it's getting to that source and talking to them and displaying what they would expect to see is way more important than guessing or looking at photographs and imagining and looking at history books or looking on the internet, I think that you need to really um, talk to the source because as soon as you start saying, oh, this is what a mod looks like, this is what a rocker looks like, if you've just, you know, sort of conjured that up, you're likely to be wrong. But if you're a mod and you know how you wear something or whatever, that display will be correct to them. In 2014, I curated an exhibition called A Street Style Journey, and it explored 25 years of street style. And for that exhibition, again, I, 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 always, I didn't get to see Amy's exhibition, but it was kind of always in my sort of mind. How, and I remember Amy saying that she, she had special advisors help her curate each part of the, each display. And um, so, I, so for that exhibition, I, I had about 10 different subcultures that I looked at, and, and one of them was grime. And I decided that Skepta was the person that I needed to talk to. And at that point, he wasn't as big as he is now. And it was literally just an email to him and he wanted to get involved. And I said to him, you've got to style this mannequin from head to toe. And he did, down to the socks. And it was an academic's tracksuit, cap, trainers, and he brought it all in. And he even came in and put the garments on the mannequin and left it exactly how it should be. And that was really, really important. Because then if anyone said that's not right, and it, 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 it was, it just was, because it, it, it was styled by someone who, you know, embodied the, the subculture. Social media, I think it can be a gift and a curse, I think that the sometimes the, the I find um, the problem with people who, when they're visiting an exhibition, is that they have their phone at, at the ready to take as many pictures as they can and they don't really enjoy it at a primary level and they're just thinking about what if they can take a photo and if they can put it on Instagram or whatever and just sort of like this, the experience of an exhibition um, can be slightly damaged by it. Also, what's interesting with social media that and looking at the um, grime subculture, social media is so important to the rise of grime, and it, it's that sort of that ability that um, the grime culture had to harness a kind of flair for for social media and stuff that actually meant that the subculture could grow in the way that it did because it was it was somewhere it was a platform for pe for people to present themselves on that wouldn't have been available before my definition of street style it's something that is individually styled by a person who is doesn't want to necessarily be involved with mainstream fashion i think that's that's the way i would describe it and who 
will embrace certain elements of, of mainstream fashion, but will will style them in a very individual way, and but, you know, in some cases, go out of their way to not be anything to do with mainstream fashion. I always find it really difficult to answer the question of, about new subcultures because I do think that there are probably new subcultures popping up all the time. And then often when I think about subcultures, there's often a style, a music, possibly a drug that kind of all make up this kind of subculture. And I now, and going back to your, back to this idea of social media, I think that now you have to think about subcultures and social media plays a huge part in that subcultures. And that might be because it might shorten the life of it because they can pop up so that you know much quicker and um and then die almost instantly because they don't grow in the same way you don't have to go to the club every saturday night and go go and buy your tickets from a record shop and the the, the you don't have to put the same amount of energy in it makes it so much easier but then i think what's interesting about social media it has created a different type of subculture in the sense that I find young people today that have only experienced um, digital culture, they are quite uh, sort of envious of people who lived in this kind of golden era before social media in a time when things were a little bit more pure. And I think that they almost have this sort of fake nostalgia for periods of time that interest them. And one of the things that then therefore... Um, it happens in social media or, you know, like through Instagram or platforms like that, is there's this vintage selling marketplace. It becomes a marketplace for selling kind of vintage garments. And one one thing that I found really interesting was when I was curating the exhibition um, at Selfridges because it had to have this commercial side to it. So we had to have vintage sellers that that dealt in the, the the same similar garments that we were displaying in the exhibition. So that was your vintage iceberg, Versace, Moschino, Dolce Gabbana. And um, that was a subculture in itself because of all those people, all the sellers and the people they sold to, they all knew each other. They communicated through social media. They all sort of had this absolute fascination with jungle music and they would, you know, try and sort of find every kind of video that available on YouTube to kind of have a sort of secondary experience of it, enjoy it in this in this new way. And I think that sort of kind of was its subculture in itself, this sort of vintage designer collective. They almost became a subculture. When I look back, I'm amazed quite how much freedom we did have working at the V&A to do an exhibition which... I don't think I, I realised it was radical, but I don't think I realised quite how radical it was till I look back now. And the clothes were on open display, but that was quite normal for clothes from the post-war period. And it's partly simply the reason that it was too expensive to put them behind glass, but it would have been absurd to put these clothes behind glass. And this exhibition did open up all sorts of debates in the museum. It involved all the museum staff in all different ways, which was exciting because... We were working with people who didn't have bank accounts. They had assumed names. They didn't work normal working hours. So the whole museum had to be persuaded to work in more flexible ways. But one of the core issues that came up that has kind of inspired or informed my work is that I felt that when you exhibit clothes that have been worn by someone, it's a very, very special way of telling a particular story. And those clothes were dirty, in some cases filthy, and sometimes completely caked in mud. And obviously it would have been completely absurd to remove the mud from the traveller's boots. But it opened all sorts of debates up, such as if we're going to leave the mud on the traveller's boots and we're going to leave the oil in the greaser's jacket, 
which over time will, of course, make them deteriorate faster than they would otherwise, why do we so routinely perhaps remove the dirt from the 18th century dress? And the, one of the legacies of the exhibition was afterwards, there was an exhibition, um, a conference at the Museum of Mankind called Sacred Dirt? Question mark, And it explored all those issues. And another legacy of the exhibition was that the auction houses, Christie's and Phillips, I think Phillips, but definitely Christie's, started doing street-style auctions, which they never would have done before. I'm interested that, having worked on this exhibition, I can see people today who might not be wearing the clothes of being a mod or a teddy boy, but I can tell by their hair, by their demeanour, there's just something about them that makes them instantly recognisable to me.